Uh, we're going to go from Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to pick it up in verse 27, and then I'm going to read all the way through chapter 30, verse 26. We're covering a big swath here, but I want to talk about um, Jacob building his house, or rather the Lord building up the house of Jacob. That's the um, gist of our uh, lesson this morning, and so I've got to cover quite a, a big, large swath of um, Scripture. So picking it up in verse 27, this is the context, of course, where Jacob has labored seven years for Leah, and, the Lord, and uh, Laban brought Leah to him in the evening. And last week we made a case that he was walking in the flesh, and so we also see that he was walking in darkness. Verse 23 says that she was brought to him in the evening. He couldn't see that it was not who he thought it was. And so when he woke up in the morning, had the light to see why it was um, Leah and not Rachel. So verse 27, fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. I'm going to jump in here and make a few comments rather than just reading it straight through and then preaching you know, on Psalm 127. I'm going to cover that one too. You see how it says here that he also went into uh, Rachel? He is very soon um, going into both women at the same time. If you were to do the math here and work this all out, and last week I told you that um, Jacob was 77 years old when he left for Peyton Harem, what you're going to figure out here is that in seven years um, he produced uh, 12 children in seven years. And so he was producing them during the same period of time that he was actually working for Rachel. So he worked first, was given Leah, then he was given Rachel, and then he worked seven years. And so the math on that, uh, it's not particularly complicated, but you gotta read a lot of verses and put it all together. And you link it up when he gives the age of Joseph during the um, famine, and then, and then we find out what the age of Jacob is. And then you can work backwards and figure all this out when things took place. Verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. How do we know Rachel's barren? Because he's going in on her and she's not producing any children. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. Well, how do we know she left bearing? Because Jacob is still going in unto her and she's no longer producing children. And when late Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, now how she would she see that? Because Jacob is going in unto her and she's not getting pregnant. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's stead, who hath, withheld, who hath withheld thee from the fruit of the womb? And she said, 
Behold my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees, that I may also have children by her. And she gave him, Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God hath judged me, and hath also heard my voice, and hath given me a son. Therefore called she his name Dan. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again, and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, how would she know this? Jacob is going in unto her, and she's not getting pregnant. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Rachel's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh, and she called his name Gad. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. Now, here again, the two women are going to take matters into their own hands, Leah and Rachel, and try to get uh, Rachel pregnant. And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them unto his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, thy son's mandrakes. So what is taking place here? Reuben is the firstborn of Leah, and he feels for his mother. These women are living in separate tents, and Jacob is spending most of his time over at Rachel's tent because he loves Rachel. Obviously, that is very hurtful to Leah, and their children are going to appreciate that and understand that their mother is very hurt by the fact that she was the first wife, and yet Jacob is not uh, spending time in her tent with her and being a family over at um, Leah's tent. So what does he do? He goes out in the field, and he finds Mandrake. Mandrakes. A mandrake is something that grows in the ground, and it is said to be an aphrodisiac. So what does he do? He's going to bring an aphrodisiac to his mother so that she will get pregnant, and the thinking is the more children Leah has, why then Jacob will finally turn his heart towards uh, Leah and love her. And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them unto his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, thy son's mandrakes. She can't get pregnant. She wants the aphrodisiacs. Now I'm in verse 15. And she said, that would be Leah said unto her, Is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? And wouldst thou take away my son's mandrakes also? Leah rightly says to her, Hey, he was my husband, he was given to me, I am the eldest and he is my husband, and you took him away, and now you would take the mandrakes that my son has given to me, you would take those also. And Rachel said, Therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. So they're basically bartering for Jacob's time. So she says, okay, why don't you take Jacob tonight? I'll take the mandrakes. This could be (laughs) win-win. Verse 16, And Jacob came out from the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, Thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Okay, well, she doesn't have the uh, benefit of the aphrodisiacs, but... What happens? She gets pregnant. And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived and bare Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire, because I have given my maiden to my husband, and he shall call his name Ishakar. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me, because I have borne him six sons, 
and she called his name Zebulun's. And afterwards, she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. So without aphrodisiacs, she gets pregnant. Rachel gets the aphrodisiacs during this period, and she does not get pregnant. So I want us to appreciate that they have taken, um, they're walking in the flesh, and it is not profiting them. It is not working. Everything is going according to God's plan. Verse 22, and God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. Verse 26, Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service which I have done unto thee. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open the word unto us that we might appreciate how God works through people to build his kingdom. Give us thy Holy Spirit that we might um, appreciate the work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, well, I've been making some rolling comments as we go through here because there's, I'm covering a rather large swath of scripture, but the intent is, of course, to glorify Christ. Um, I want us to appreciate that in verse 25 and 26 here that Jacob is saying, I have completed my service um, for Rachel. I've completed the seven years. Joseph has been born. Let me go home. So do the math, 12 children in seven years. And so you can appreciate that. There is no way you could set this up in a consecutive manner where he could produce um, 12 children um, unless he was producing them via four wives and they were all pregnant at the same time at certain points in their history. So he was, he was busy. I'll just leave it at that. So... Our deacon read for us Psalm 127, and so I want to go there and take a look at that because it, it sets things before us in a spiritual manner that, so that we might appreciate what is going on here uh, with respect to the life of Jacob and what is going on with respect to the house of Israel. In Psalm 127, in verse 1, it says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. So we appreciate that, that we, when we move forward to engage in a particular project, that we want the Lord's blessing. And so, as we have said many times, that we don't lean on our own understanding. We trust in the Lord. We seek his counsel for, our, for all things to make sure that we are doing something that is honoring to God and that he indeed wants us to do it. I think we can appreciate that the Tower of Babel was brought to naught because it was something that God did not want the people to do. They worked very hard, they labored at it, and yet he scattered everybody's, um, scattered the languages, or confused the languages rather, and that scattered the people, and so it came to naught. They did not finish building it. Um, with respect to Noah building the ark, clearly the Lord had his hand in that, and so Noah labored at it greatly for many, many years, hired people, no doubt, to help him with it, had his sons involved in the labor, and that came to fruition, and it served God's um, purpose. There are some people in the Christian community that think all they need to do is get on their knees and pray for something as though they can pray for something to come into existence. And we certainly begin with prayer, but you might need to get out hammers and nails and mill some lumber and actually put your nose to the grindstone, to use a colloquial term, and actually get out there and build. And so it is. As we engage in the labor of the Lord, we get out there and we do work, but we um, expect that he is directing us and we would rest in that so that we would not be fretful about whether or not we're doing it, whether or not it will be successful. 
the Lord admonishes us in the Gospels that we would not build a tower without first counting the cost, you know, unless we lay the foundation and not able to complete it, and then people would think that we are fools. Now, clearly, the spiritual side of that is the Lord knew exactly what it was going to cost him to build the church, but there was a great deal of labor involved in that for him, meaning he knew exactly how many people he was going to die for, and he knew that he had to die for it, and it meant the cross. So he, that was all laid out, and he knew exactly what needed to be done. And so we can appreciate the first verse there, that the Lord was building that house. Now, we, of course, as I said, we must indeed labor and trust that the Lord will prosper our work. Um, when you consider the example of uh, Solomon's temple, that was a great labor. Um, resources were gathered from uh, large, uh, a large number of places or many places from distant places. Even some of the um, materials came for that, came from many people. And it was a great labor to do that. And God did indeed prosper it because we know that, as it says, not the sound of a tool was not heard in the construction of the temple. The stones were cut precisely and perfectly to sizes and they were brought and laid in the um, temple. And so God prospered that. Now, the second part of the verse there in Psalm 127 says that except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Now, nowhere in there would it encourage a watchman to fall asleep on the job and not actually pay attention, but he's supposed to do his job um, in a diligent manner and accepting responsibility for it, as in uh, Ezekiel 33 talks about that. The watchman bears a responsibility, so we go about our work. We work, and we trust that the Lord will keep his eye on the city. If the Lord's not watching the city, it doesn't matter how vigilant you are. It will come to naught. Babylon, we know, falls by the Mede Persians because I think, as the story goes, they walked in through the gates via the um, Euphrates River, and they came up on the inside, unlocked the doors, and then they came in and overthrew the city. So the watchmen there, they might have been awake, but the Lord was not watching the city and indeed had appointed it for destruction. Um, with respect to the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra, it talks about how there were people that um, tried to keep them from rebuilding. That, that's Ezra chapter 4, verses 1, 4, and 11. And so first they tried to infiltrate the people that were building it that they might frustrate their purpose. Then they hired um, counselors to frustrate their ends. They sent letters to Artaxerxes to halt the construction. But then the, uh, the king over there... Um, searched the records and saw that Cyrus had indeed given them authority to build the temple. With respect to rebuilding the wall when they had returned, we read in the book of Nehemiah about how in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the enemies conspired to attack them when they were rebuilding the wall. And what did he do in verse 9? Why they prayed, and then they set a watch to um, keep them safe during their work. So they prayed. The Lord is going to be the one who's going to keep the city and yet they will set a watch as well. And in verse 15, we see that the broad God brings their counsel, the enemy's counsel, to not, frustrates their purpose, and then they set to work um, building the wall. In verse 17, we know that they did so. It says, everyone with his hand brought the work. With the other hand, they held the weapon. So they were very much vigilant and diligent about the work that they were doing. So Christians must do the same. We pray, and then we set about the the work that the Lord has set before us um, with, with diligence. Now, what is our weapon? Well, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. And so the weapon that we fight with is prayer, and we fight with the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Uh, and that is our weapon that we use when we go out and build things and do things for the Lord. In verse 2, we read, 
It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. So what you don't want to be doing is, as you're out there laboring, fretting that it will come to naught, which you will do if you're doing it in the, in the flesh. You will feel like, well, I've poured all of my, my labor into this thing, and, and I feel like I might be wasting my time or I might be wasting my resources, and so that's going to cause you to lose sleep at night. You're not going to sleep well because of it. And yet we know that it's the Lord who can give us a restful night in sleep. So we would trust in the Lord as builders that he is directing our steps and our efforts and really designing it, and, and we are working for him. Um, and so we would rest in him if that's the case, if we can truly appreciate that. If we have started the process in prayer and seeking the Lord's will and direction, then we can rest in him that he will, in fact, bring it to fruition. It's not something we need to fret about. Ecclesiastes 5.12 tells us that the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eateth little or much. And so if we're laboring in the Lord to bring glory unto him, he would certainly give us a restful night's sleep. And we would be restful also in the context that we would know that what we're doing is the proper thing, that we're not building a kingdom of men and for men, um, lifting ourselves up um, to our own glory, but rather bringing up the Lord, raising up the Lord in glory. And that will give us a peaceful thing. So that would be true. We would expect a restful night if we labor for the Lord again, knowing it is the Lord's will to do this thing and that he's going to keep the house. He's going to bring it to fruition. It is all under his watch and under his direction. Now in verse 3, we're going to get kind of the, what the meat of this, what this is really all about. It says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows, as arrows, are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So ask yourself, to whom do you build the house or the city for? What is the object or what is the intent of that? If you're not building it for your children, are you building it for yourself? What do you take from this life to the next life? What is enduring and what is endearing? And is those things which you would do for your children, for your progeny? Those are the ones who will populate your house after you are gone. So in a spiritual context, we ask ourselves, who shall populate the children of heaven? Who shall populate the house of the Lord? Is it not the sons of glory? Well, the Lord tells us that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. He refers to us as sons of glory. So in Hebrews 2, 10, it says, For it became him, that would be God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through um, suffering. And so what he's speaking about here is that it is we are his sons, and we are the ones which will populate this kingdom that he is building through his um, work on the cross. In 1 Peter 2, 5, it speaks of us as lively stones being built up into a spiritual household. They are pro uh, chosen and precious to God. So God is building up his house. Psalm 127, verse 1, the Lord is building up his house and he's using precious and chosen stones to build that of which we are. Now, interestingly enough, the words in Hebrew, house, then the word son, and the word daughter, all come from the same root word, which means to build. 
And so we can appreciate that what is really in view here is a spiritual household. The Bible speaks of uh, the household of Moses, and it speaks of the house of David. And those are spiritual houses. When you watch some of those foolish shows on TV that are entitled the house of something, the house of Windsor or something, you're not watching houses. You're not watching them pound nails and build all of these uh, you know, English mansions. You're watching all of the silly dynamics between the people as they seek to um, manipulate other people in their family. They seek to control things and they seek to uh, lift themselves up. That's the house you're watching. Um, and so the house of the Lord, of course, is people. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, the Lord uses that language with respect to Christ, is that he is a son over his own house. In verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 3, it says, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house. So he, there, the Bible is using that language with respect to the house of Moses, but it's an allusion to really the house of God. It says in verse 4, For every house is built by some man, but he that buildeth all things is God. So the house that's being built here in Genesis chapter 29 is being built by God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So the Lord is not leaving us with any doubt here what we are. The saints, the Christians, are the house of God. And in 1 Timothy 3.15, we read, he says, But I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the Lord is helping us connect these docs that we would appreciate that Jesus is a son over his own house. He's also God. The house of God is the church. So Right here, we are the house of God that God himself is building up. Um, now, who builds that house? Well, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 sets that out pretty clearly for us. Jesus says he's going to build his church. Upon this rock, meaning the rock of faith, meaning Christ himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is the one who is building his house, and as it says in Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, it is God himself, it is Jehovah, who is building the house, and he's building it with Christ and through Christ. And as the Lord says in um, Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, you see that in verse 5 here, where he talks about how they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So in Psalm 127, he likens children to an arrow and the house like a quiver full of arrows. And we would appreciate that with respect to the building of the house in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, what we call the Great Commission, where the Lord tells us to go out into the world and teach them whatsoever things that he has taught them, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We can appreciate that arrows are like uh, spiritual children shot forth out into the world where they would bring spiritual truths and preach the gospel to them. And they will speak with the enemies in the gate. The, um, the gate or judgment of the enemy will not prevail against them, but rather we will hold fast and we will be um, using our weapon, which is the word of God, to bring truth before them. So again, it's the Lord who's building his church. It's the Lord who's building his house. And so we see this set forth here. 
um, in uh, Genesis chapter 29 and chapter 30. So children are an heritage of the Lord and they are the um, fruit of the womb is his reward. So we, we whom are the children of God, we are the fruit of his worm, of his womb, and we were birthed through his death on the cross. You know, there is language in the scriptures that talks about the, the um, birth pains associated with the um, coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we get closer and closer to it, there's more groaning and travailing waiting for this process to take place. But we are birthed by Christ through his work on the cross. Now, it is not uncommon, or was not uncommon, I should say, for a woman to die in childbirth. And we see that very thing happen in uh, Genesis chapter 35. And so I do want to read there in Genesis chapter 35, verses 17 through 19. Now, it is very interesting what Rachel had said to um, Jacob. She had said, give me children, else I die. Well, that's exactly what happened to her. She died in childbirth. So in Genesis 35, pick it up in verse 16, and it says, and they, that would be Jacob's house, traveled from Bethel, which is the house of God, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrata. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. What an interesting thing that she would be concerned about the life of the child as her own life uh, wanes. Verse 18, And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So she dies right at the birthplace of Christ. So the Lord is helping us to link this, and we'll talk about that more when we finally get there. So it is not uncommon for a woman, or was not uncommon, that a woman might die in childbirth. So we should appreciate what a wonderful gift it is when the Lord opens the womb, keeps everybody healthy, and brings the child to fruition. In our upside-down world, we often view children as an encumbrance, as a burden. And I would share with you, I had my children uh, before I was a Christian, and so I counted the cost. What does it cost to have a child? And I'm like, I can only afford two, so we stop there. Um, But it should be evident from our reading, as a Christian, you should know that if you trust the Lord in all things, if you trust him to open the womb and give you a child as as a gift, that he would give you the means to support that child once he gives you that child, that it would be a package deal. Um, It is a gift, childbearing, that sometimes the Lord withholds. And we see that with respect to the different women there in Genesis chapter 29 and chapter 30, that he opens wombs and he closes wombs. And there are many places in Scripture where some women uh, are unable to bear because God has closed the womb. And the Scripture always appoints it unto God as the one who is closing the womb. They did not have fertility clinics, Although, as you can see by the mandrakes, that um, Leah and Rachel tried that. But my point is, they always attribute it unto God, and so it is true this day. I don't care what the medical community says. It is God who open, opens and closes the wombs, the womb of women. How he does that is between himself and the woman. Um, so um, in our society, our upside-down society, children are counted as burdens. 
and because of the selfish nature of man, our covetous nature, and our failure to raise children in the nurture and fear of the Lord, we have a society that is waxing worse and worse and moving further and further from the Lord. But again, it was because we pushed the Lord out. Uh, you know that with respect to the laws that have come across our land, that we falsely use the Constitution and cry separation of church and state to push the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse and out of the schoolhouses and and any other uh, so-called public place. Um, but if we did raise our children in the nurture and fear of the Lord, why then people would have a, um, would appreciate the value and the gift that children actually are. Um, now, back to Jacob, we can appreciate that he is not seeking the Lord's counsel in the things that he is doing. And so things are a mess there. The only time there's an acknowledgement of God is when Rachel comes to him and says, give me children else I die. And then he says, am I in God's stead? That's verse two of Genesis chapter 30. Recall that um, his father, Isaac, and mother, um, Rebecca, did seek the Lord's counsel when uh, about her becoming pregnant. It was a number of years before she became pregnant. And so they sought the Lord's face and the Lord's counsel. And that is a good and a proper thing to do. But you don't see Jacob doing that. And so he's bouncing between four different women to produce children. Um, now, I wonder what would have happened with the house of Israel. I wonder what would have happened in terms of the relationships between all of the people in that house if Jacob would have stopped at the well and prayed, asked if this woman had a sister, asked if this was the woman that was appointed for me, or would have woke up in the morning and said, it's Leah. I guess this is the one whom the Lord had appointed for me and stopped there. I think things would have been a lot different in that household. You can appreciate what you just saw there about what we saw here in chapter 30 about maybe how heavy Reuben's heart is that he would bring mandrakes to his mother with the idea that if she produced more children, then Jacob would come and stay with them in their tent. But Jacob struggles with this issue um, for a very long time. Um, when it comes time to confront or be confronted by um, Esau, he ranks his family and puts the handmaids first and their children, and then he puts um, Leah and her children, and then he puts Rachel and Joseph last. So he clearly has his favorites in terms of the women and the children that they have produced. And that, those dynamics are going to carry forward to where the brothers sell um, Joseph into uh, slavery. Read about that in Genesis chapter 33. Verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over and before them and bowed himself unto the ground seven times until he came near his brother. How do you think the kids felt and how do you think the women felt when they were being ranked in order to come before a man whom Jacob has said must surely hate me who has 400 um, men? Well, I have no doubt that they were very, uh, very hurt in their hearts. Um, in Genesis 37.4, this is that the Lord is giving a narrative about the relationship to Joseph and his brothers. And it says, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So 
from Genesis 37 all the way to the birth of Joseph, Joseph is the favorite son, and that's going to cause problems. And it causes problems in every family when, when those things take place. It's going to take a long time for Jacob to work through this, but God is going to have to remove Joseph from Jacob's life like he removes every idol before he gets things um, straightened out as to having God number one and then appreciating your children are a gift from God. So as we look at all of the um, dynamics that take place in Jacob's life, um, we find it very interesting, as we do elsewhere in Scripture, that God works through sinful people to affect his ends. We know in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And Jacob is clearly set apart as somebody who is called according to the purpose of God. So all of these interesting dynamics are going to work for his good. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, I mentioned this principle last week, is that what men mean for evil, God means for good in the context of his, his elect. And so all of this is going to work for the benefit of Israel. God is going to build up that household very quickly. As I said, seven years, you have 12 um, children. You have 11 boys at that point and one daughter. So even though Jacob and these women are all guilty of the sin of um, adultery, their covetousness is involved there, there is envy. Nevertheless, through all of those dynamics, God builds up the house of Israel. And something we should appreciate, though we don't see this except the one time from Jacob's mouth, Leah and Rachel, every time they have a child, they acknowledge the birth of that child as from God. Every one of them. And the women are the ones who, interestingly enough, are the ones who are naming the children. And in every occasion when they name their child, they give God the glory, and they name each child in such a manner as to affirm that. And what's particularly interesting, as we're going to go through the handout next, is that when taken in a composite, it describes the Lord and his work. So you can appreciate that surely these women are not communicating with each other and saying, well, I'm going to name child number four this, and child number five is going to be uh, given uh, to this woman, and why don't you name them that so we can put this whole story together. But that indicates, of course, helps us appreciate that God is in the composite of the whole thing, that his hand is everywhere, and that he is indeed glorifying his son, Jesus Christ, through everything that takes place here. Jesus Christ, of course, who is a son over his own house, and whose house are we. So if you'll take out your hand out there where I have listed all the children um, that Eventually, Israel will give birth to, that Jacob will give birth to, and I have the child's name in their birth order, and we have what that name means when they were given that name, and then I put some cross-reference verses here to indicate that Christ is the one who is in view there. Now, interestingly enough, if you look on the far left there, you'll see that there are 10 boys first, and then is the daughter Dinoborn. Ten represents a generic period of time or a generic number of uh, indicating God has accomplished a particular purpose during that period of time. So it's no surprise that there's a break at the tenth boy, and then you have Dinah, whose name means judgment, and then you have the two children after that, both of which are, um, the names are clearly, I mean, of all of the names, they're clearly um, indicative of Christ himself. So Reuben is born, and uh, the mother names him because a son has been given to her, we know in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that it says that um, to us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So it starts out with a son being given, and we know that Christ was manifest in the flesh, God manifests in the flesh, and a son is given to us. 
Simeon means hearkening. And we can appreciate that the Lord ever hears um, the elect, that we are told that we can come before the throne of grace and lay our petitions before the Lord and that he will indeed um, hear us. And uh, number three, Levi, that means joined. And we can appreciate that through the atonement of Christ in Romans 5.11, that by Christ we are joined to God, that we are united with him through the offering whereby he is the atonement. Child four, Judah, he shall be praised. In Philippians chapter two, verse nine, it says that his name will be, he will be given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess of things above, things in the earth and things beneath the earth, that Jesus is Lord. So that's a wonderful name for child number four. Child number five means a judge. And we know that Christ in John chapter 5, verse 22 and 27, that he is indeed the righteous judge. Number six, Nephtali, my wrestling. We can appreciate that we wrestle with not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, that our spirit, uh, our flesh lusts against our spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so there's this war going on inside us and that the only way that you can prevail in it is if Christ is in you and that the Holy Spirit is empowering you to um, overcome your flesh and overcome the principalities and powers of this present darkness. You're not going to overcome it of yourself. It is only Christ in you that you might achieve any measure of victory against the flesh or against the spiritual nature of our enemies. Number seven, Gad means a troop, and we know that Christ himself is the Lord of Sabaoth, which means Lord of an army, Lord of a troop. That's Romans 9.29. Child number eight, Asher, happy. We know that we uh, can rejoice in the Lord for all of the things that he has done for us and for the things that he has laid in store for us, for all the wonderful promises that we have in Christ. Indeed, we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Philippians 4.4 4 says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. And indeed, that's the only place a Christian can truly rejoice because this world is a mess. Uh, Issachar, number nine, he will bring reward. Well, in Genesis 15, 1, the Lord said that to Abraham, I am thy exceeding great reward. When Christ comes to you, he brings himself, which is our exceeding great reward. There's no greater reward than a person can have than to receive Christ himself. Zebulun dwelling. Obviously, we dwell in the Lord. He dwells with us. But what's more important is, of course, we dwell in him. In Psalm 23, 6, we read that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So all of this is about the construction of the house of the Lord, and he's telling us that our dwelling in the house of the Lord is a place of eternal dwelling, a place of eternal rest. In John 17, 21, it drills down a little bit more where Jesus is praying and says that uh, we would be one in him as he is one in the Father, we would be one in them. So we are in Christ, and Christ in, is in us, and so he is our dwelling place. Then we get to Dinah, which means judgment. And so we know that after a period of time, God brings judgment, um, which, he, which he does indeed bring. And, and we know that that's going to take place. There's going to come a time when he pours out his wrath upon all humanity in judgment. And only those that will get through judgment are those who are in Christ, who are um, in whom he is dwelling also. So now comes child number, um, boy number 11, and he is named Joseph, because it means, let him add who takes away reproach. Let him add who takes away a, a reproach. And so what has the Lord done for us through Christ? Second Corinthians 5.21 talks about how he hath made him sin, 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there's an imputation process there by which our reproach has been removed and placed on Christ, and the righteousness of God was imputed from him to us. And so he did add, indeed, to us, he added, to us, uh, giving us eternal life um, by virtue of the work that he has accomplished. Then we get to boy number 12, and his name is First Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. And indeed, Rachel did sorrow greatly because she feared for the life of the child. And so she was told not to, the child would be born, uh, but she nevertheless died. And we know in Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ in particular, that he is a man of sorrows, acquainted, acquainted with, with grief. Um, Lamentations 1.12 says, Behold my sorrow, if there be any sorrow, uh, like unto my sorrow. So Jesus Christ is a man of sorrows. But his father renames him, and we know that after the cross, what happens to Christ? He becomes son of my right hand. So his name is changed. His father names him Benjamin. And Psalm 110 and other places, of course, speak about how the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so Christ himself sits at the right hand of God. So in summary, what we see here as we read through this rather large swath of uh, the scripture there with respect to the birth of all of uh, Jacob's children is that in spite of all of the foolishness that he is engaged in, God is nevertheless building things for his glory. God is glorifying himself in a, in a very short period of time. He has given him 12 sons, and they will move, build up a large house. It'll continue to get bigger. They'll go down to Egypt, and they'll come out with upwards of a million people, men, and uh, when he removes them from Egypt. So the Lord is, is working through them. They're sinful. God is nevertheless dealing with that sin and using that sin in a productive way that glorifies himself. So we should take that to heart in all of the things that we do, that we want to pray as we move forward and that we want to seek the Lord's will and his counsel and we want to be serving him when we do things so that we can rest easily at night, that no matter how things work out, we're like, all right, Lord, um, I have sought your counsel. I am doing things that I believe is according to your will and doing it in a godly way, unlike Jacob, but we have the benefit of the scriptures with us and everyone here should be regenerated. Jacob was not at that point. It's not going to be till later that he truly wrestles with the Lord. Um, and so we might rest at night and leave things to him, not lose any sleep over whether or not things are going to come to fruition. The Lord must build the house, and so we must be assured that he is indeed building the house and he is using us to labor to that end. So with that, I'll say amen. Amen.